Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Fully Puffed, a Gilmore Girls podcast. I'm Grace, and I'm here with my co-host, Catherine. Hello. I said hi as if I were you. (laughs) Very strange of me. (laughs) And we're here to talk about the second episode of season one, the Lorelai's first day at Chilton, which to me is a very difficult episode title to say. The Lorelai's first day at Chilton. (laughs) It's not an easy one to pronounce. But we wanted to start, I think, just by having a general... um, little discussion about our preconceptions going into the episode. Is this one we typically uh, rank on our favorites list? Is it one we're a little more hesitant about watching? Um, And then go through just our, you know, scene by scene observations like we did last week. And thank you for tuning in last week, by the way. And thank you for tuning in this week. Um, We really appreciate you guys. And then sort of go into the themes of the episode, how it works on a genre level, our, um, our little segments that we do every week, et cetera. So Catherine, this is an episode that you really tend to enjoy, right? Yes, I do. Oh, first though, I did want to point out, um, I, like when I watch TV shows, I'm very interested in who the writer and the director is. And so we didn't do that last week, um, but I did want to point out that the pilot episode was written by Amy Sherman Palladino, as many of these episodes are. Um, but it was directed by Leslie Linkaglatter, who directed lots of episodes of Twin Peaks, which is one of my favorite shows. Grace, I believe, also is a Twin yes. Peaks fan. Twin um, Peaks fan here too. Yeah, there's a lot of Twin Peaks crossover, and um, and so I just wanted to point that out because I thought that was really interesting, and I had no idea that she did that. Um, and then also, she directed the movie Now and Then. Um, have you seen that? I've never seen that so good it's the 90s like I don't even know what to call it like kind of girl power coming of age um it's amazing and you should definitely watch it and then we can talk we can do a special episode on the pod yes but I all wanted to point out this week is Arlene Sanford who um directed the classic film a very Brady sequel which was one of my my god so funny and so dumb and it's funny because I feel like the Gilmores would enjoy that mm-hmm. I know they watch the um is it the yeah. family like variety hour right. they yeah that, that when Rory gets her Harvard application in the mail that's what they're watching yeah. um yeah so I that's like a very interesting not meta exactly but <laughs> meta yeah moment it very Brady sequel though you have you not seen it I've never seen it I've, I've never been a Brady person I think because my my parents were not Brady people and so we didn't have it really around well it's you should you should check it out though because it's like a satire oh um, okay. okay perfect so even more Gilmore Girlsy yes it's hilarious um Christine Taylor plays Marsha and I it's I can't even begin it's so funny and um I loved it when I was like in middle school and Alfred loved it and we rewatched it um like a couple years ago and we thought it was going to be stupid we were cracking up it's so like dumb funny oh we have to watch it yeah like Zoolander kind of funny (laughs) I mean it's just it's it's amazing, um, and then then she also directed the Jonathan Taylor Thomas Christmas movie. I'll be home for Christmas. Stop. JTT. 
and Jessica Beal. And I tried to watch that this Christmas and it was so bad and stupid, but like in a good way that I was like, Alfred, you gotta watch this with me. And then we forgot. So maybe next year. That's but. the, we can do that for a Christmas episode for the yeah. pop. That's the perfect Gilmore Girls director is someone who has experience with that sort of like kitsch and satire. Um, yeah. That's like somebody Lorelai and Rory would love. For sure. So I, I really love that. Did you see yeah. any, not to put you on the spot, but like any features of her directing that you had noticed from her other stuff come into play in this episode? No, not really, except for, and this is something that, that I, you know, I didn't really see last episode either, but there is a small amount of sort of this uncanniness. Yes, I want to talk about that actually. Yeah. yeah. And that'll like increase as the season goes on, but, or as the, um, the years go on, but, but yeah. Season Maybe one has like an almost Twin Peaksy uncanniness that I think, even though like the show will get uncanny in different ways as the, se- the series goes on, I think that it's like an uncanny, this particular uncanniness is one that's really only present in season one, especially mm-hmm. like the early first like four or five episodes. And I think it has a lot to do with like the lighting choices yeah. and the fact that it's not as comedy heavy. There's just yeah. something about it that looks and like some of the, the camera angles are like a little different and avant-garde and they're not used in, they play like the camera very straight, I think in most Gilmore Girls episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, like the first few episodes, they're doing experimental things with the camera angles. And I think it lends to a different feel than the later seasons have. Yeah, you pointed out in, in your notes for both episodes, the like very warm kind of dreamy lighting. And I love that. Yes, and especially present in like the independence in kitchen scenes with Suki. And I think that that to me like has a very Twin Peaks feel combined with the makeup that you you mentioned is like the, yeah. the mauve and browns that Lorelai is rocking in this episode, which we love. Um, I think it gives like a very almost like stylized vibe to yeah. it. Um, yeah that's super interesting and, and kind of like a retro fifties look yeah. that they bring. That's very Twin Peaksy. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I kind of derailed what you, <laughs> you wanted to start. That, was, that was a conversation I wanted to have about directors and about the uncanniness. So I'm glad that you brought it up. I think it's a good way to foreground our discussion of the episode. So this is one that you've clearly paid a ton of attention to because you're a great reader and watcher and you really sure. like, right? Yes. So, okay. So, I like this episode because, and I was going to bring this up in the last um, episode, but um, I'm very like interested in the dark academia, like whole aesthetic. I love dark academia. Yeah. <laughs> I have been and, to Google dark academia where to buy. Yes. <laughs> um, it's like, and I think I grew up in Oklahoma okay. and I was born in Texas. My mom was from originally from Ohio but she moved to they moved to New Mexico when she was really young my dad is from Michigan but like his mom moved to Oklahoma to be with us and so my like sense of the world um like the world that I grew up in and like saw on the daily was very you know drab (laughs) Yeah. And so I really kind of fetishized New England from a young age and Gilmore Girls definitely played into that for me. Um, 
And like when I went to college, I went to St. John's College in Santa Fe. I remember I got there and it's all very like modern and it's up in the mountains. Um, and so, I mean, there was like forest all around, but it wasn't that like New England kind of would be, or even like what we have here in Virginia. Um, and I like got there and I was like, what have I done? <laughs> I wanted to go to Chilton. Like that way. Yeah, and I, I mean, I ended up leaving that school for a number of reasons, but um, the college that I ended up going to um, was like built in the 1920s and had like kind of some some Gothic vibes. And so that was just sort of what I wanted, um, the atmosphere and the aesthetic that I wanted to be surrounded by. And so I love this episode basically just because you get to be at Chilton. I also fetishize, I mean, I'm, so I'm from Southern New Jersey and those of you who aren't familiar with the, the Southern New Jersey area, um, which there's absolutely no reason you, sh- you would be or should be. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I'm like 20 minutes from Philadelphia, but it's also very rural farmland. And even though my particular town is a, was a small town of 3000 people, so smaller technically than the stars hollow signs as it is though, as you noted, I don't feel like their population is like almost 10,000. Um, but I also fetishized that New England ha- small town aesthetic. I think that was as a child, one of my favorite things about watching the show, if not my favorite thing, like the idea of, um, you know, just that little small town that, that just really has that like New England feel to it. And yeah. as a kid after watching Gilmore Girls, I wanted to go antiquing and I like bothered my mom to take me antiquing on our main street. And I think it's cause I wanted to feel like I was in stars hollow, but yeah, the, the Chilton aesthetic is so is set up so well in this episode, I think. Yeah. They nail, I know they, you know, we were talked about last week, I think, about how they, or at least I made notes about it, about how they changed the Gilmore's house, like Emily and Richard. Um, and they yeah. changed, you know, they can't get that quite right for a couple episodes, but they nailed Chilton from the beginning. Like yeah. the set pieces of Chilton are so good and are so instrumental in giving you a feel for the school, the imposing nature of it. And you immediately understand what kind of a school Rory is attending and yeah. how you should feel about it and what the school's expectations for her are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, I think, you know, I went to a high school that had like a thousand students per grade my school was very, I mean, it was Oklahoma, so it was all about football, and I mean, it was probably more like Stars Hollow High, but in Oklahoma. <laughs> Stars Hollow High may or may not be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, you know, I was in AP, but nobody, I, there just wasn't this emphasis on academics, and we certainly were not talking about Tolstoy <laughs> in our English class, and um I just like, I loved it. I, I, that's, I think when I decided I wanted to be in academia was from Gilmore Girls, which is I such a weird that. thing. So do you want to talk about, like, do you want to go straight into that? Cause I think we're, we sort of have a natural progression into number one, like how Chilton sets it's how the show sets Chilton up um, about how we're supposed to feel about it. What sort of mood we're supposed to get from it. And the idea of like really intense study and academic expectations that Chilton has. Yeah, and also like, as you pointed out, how the relationships are mediated by academic success yes, and not by like social standing. Yeah. And that's something that like I just clicked with and 
I mean, obviously we both are in a PhD program, so <laughs> we understand this, but there was something just really amazing to me about like caring about academics that yeah. I just wanted to live in that world. Yeah, so I, let's talk about that. So Chilton is with the first time we see Chilton is, is quite close to the beginning of the episode, not right at the beginning, but um, it's imposing. It's it's the Gothic architecture. And then yeah. we get Headmaster Charleston's office, <laughs> um, which has a bit of like a weird uncanny feel with that, like very from an eighties movie secretary. Yes. Um, what is up with her? They shove her out of the show real quick. <laughs> yeah, she like, is such a weird, almost like set dressing. Like, yes. Now we have the eccentric uh, secretary right out of Twin Peaks or something. She yeah. is out of Twin Peaks. She's so, it's, I hate keeping, that I'm still using the word uncanny, but she's, it's such an uncanny feel with her. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, she's gone and never see her she's again. We never see her again, ever. Um, well, maybe, should we maybe back it up a little bit though? Because part of what I want to talk about is Lorelai's presence, Lorelai's chaotic yes. presence in that room, which we would have to go back to the very beginning of the yes. episode. Yeah, we can go back to the beginning. So let's, let's, so that we have the really cute painting the toenail scene, which is something I think of always when I think of Gilmore Girls. Like that image of Lorelai painting Rory's toenails is to me quintessential Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Um, and then we have Lorelai waking up after the cute scene, you know, when Link comes in, um, we have Lorelai oversleeping her alarm and waking her up purring alarm, her purring alarm <laughs> to, um, <laughs> to scramble to find her clothes. Both of us made notes about the alarm clock. <laughs> Catherine you said it made you want to get a furry purring alarm. I like, yeah, I don't know why I, for like a year now I have had this desire to have an analog like alarm clock so cute. I, yeah, I, I don't know why I don't do it but I haven't so I don't know if this is like an unfulfilled desire that will continue or maybe I'll just buy myself one I but think um the the reason maybe you haven't bought yourself one is that that the plot of I overslept my alarm or my alarm didn't work has almost yes. entirely gone away with the advent of the smartphone alarm yes. that set like 50 alarms and they always go off um but as you noted the my alarm didn't go off I overslept thing is a very stock plot for a lot of tv shows like you said Seinfeld for Gilmore Girls I find it very relatable and believable that Lorelai's fuzzy alarm clock does not go off because yeah. of course it doesn't like that thing is not reliable at all <laughs> yeah I hadn't even thought about that but you're right that like if you need to get up to be somewhere you set like alarms every three minutes yeah. and I think that's supposed to be another thing that shows us too that like Lorelai is still a little emotionally mm -hmm. immature and that like it's her daughter's first day of school and I get that the fuzzy alarm clock is the only alarm clock that she has but like Lorelai come on you yeah. that is not gonna really wake you up I also found it extremely realistic that she would have all these plans about how she's gonna have this perfect morning and have the best outfit and then she wakes up and it completely goes to hell I've had that happen multiple times and there's nothing worse than waking up and having the outfit that you planned on wearing not fit or not be clean or you can't yeah. find it. Though you noted something that I think is really correct, which is that like, number one, 
I guess athleisure hadn't been invented yet because she could have gone in just her pajamas and it wouldn't fine. Yes. I was very confused by that. And then I had to stop and sort of back it up and go back to my 1999 brain and be like, oh, I guess like part of me wonders if athleisure became so popular to be just because of these types of situations, you know, where like, that's a good point. You have to run out of the house, especially for moms. Yes. Um, and it's just, I mean, I remember even back when I was in college, there was the big debate about whether or not leggings were pants. Yes. I had that and, too when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now like everybody wears like, they're more pants than actual pants. Yeah. I mean, especially during the pandemic, oh, but, yeah. uh, um, back too. I don't think like, I don't think there's going to be a, a movement that's anti-leggings. It's no, because why would time. you go back? Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, like going out in your pajamas, I guess was like a super weird thing to do or so she just grabs whatever is there but I don't know but what, one thing that I've kind of always disliked about this episode is that outfit because I'm like I don't be- I don't believe that I, be- I don't believe that you would have yeah. worn that and even if you did you belt it <laughs> I thought that was a great point that you made that you're like just belt the coat and then it looks like a chic like a very chic like coat dress wear freaking normal shoes don't wear cowboy boots no, and just, belt your coat and you're done you're good not like her shoes were dirty like we see her wearing her regular heels the the rest of the episode when she finally changes so like put on your heels belt the coat and you're shazam and also you said like you were like i would not have taken off my coat in that office under like threat of death i would not have no. I, like yeah. i i no Mm-mm. nothing yeah. i would have been like that coat off no I you know you, oh, you're gonna think I'm weird do you think I'm rude too bad too bad like get, get over it um and I get that Emily's pestering her but like and I know that like it's supposed to work narratively for the show like the show needs her to take that coat off and show that outfit yeah. right um but just from a perspective of like what I would do as a person absolutely not yeah um, yeah, there was a lot she could have done. I mean, I have fully done stuff like that, like not wanted to get fully ready and so worn a cute coat and nice shoes. And then- it goes so far to make people think that you're like presentable. Put together, yeah. yeah, put together exactly. And people don't question that. I always said like a two out of three rule, even when you're going somewhere like during the day works. So you, two, your three things are your hair, your makeup and your outfit. And if two out of the three done well, you can get away with one not looking good. So full face of, not full face of makeup, but like your makeup looks good and your hair looks good. And you're wearing like a kind of like a sweatpants outfit. You're fine. If you have great hair and a great outfit and no makeup, people are like, oh, cool. It's like avant-garde, but you have to have two of the three. Lorelai has three, the makeup and the hair look great. Just like (laughs) keep the freaking coat on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I do not buy that Lorelai would not have belted the coat when creepy dad. Went. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about him. What a, like, I think I understand it because I don't know if you saw my note, but I was like, he reminds me, he's from American Psycho. I don't know why. I think I also understand how it happened casting wise. Like he's supposed to be the slightly older, like, businessman, square jaw, all American, yeah. chill and dad. Like wasp. 
Yeah. He sends a very clear wasp signal. I just don't think he's hot. He feels very <laughs> like from an earlier era to me. Like he's, yeah. he's two eighties for this show. Yeah. Especially when it's, it's broadcasting such heavy nineties vibes. Yeah. But then again, I think that is kind of the vibe they were going for. That's true. Chilton is very dated in the sense that like, it's sort of trapped in this like 1950s kind of prep school. Yes. Um, academic, East Coast academic waspy world. Um, and so that, that's why I said I wanted to back it up a little bit because then when we think about Lorelai, the juxtaposition of chaotic Lorelai yes. with her colorful outfit and like cut off in the middle of this world, this very like pristine, rarefied academic world, um, like that's sort of the, the, the juxtaposition that like fuels the show. Mm-hmm. Except that, you know, she is from that world. Yeah, I think that's really smart that you bring that up. And I think that's why as much as we can clown on Lorelai for not doing a realistic, you know, for not belting her freaking coat. I think the the effect of having her go in with that ridiculous outfit and be chaotic and louder and sort of not manic, but manic light um, in that world is what makes for a compelling story. And I think it's, yeah. it's the engine of the story there. Um, so I think that that, that is what we get. That's a, that's a big narrative driver in this episode is like stodgy Chilton is shaken up, not by Rory, who has a completely yeah. different Chilton plot in this episode, which we'll talk about. And it's mainly academic driven, but Lorelai is the engine of chaos, like a tornado that rips through Chilton. Ooh, this actually, you use the word manic. Do we think that Lorelai is a manic pixie green girl? <laughs> Um, I think that's an interesting question. I think Lorelai exists before the manic pixie dream girl trope happened. Yeah. And I think that she has a lot more complexity than like the typical manic pixie dream girl. But I think that there's, I think that there's certain aspects of her that, that align closely with the trope. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like, I think <laughs> historically speaking, I think Annie Hall is like considered. Oh yeah, good call. That's actually a crazy dream girl. But yeah, it wasn't like really so much a thing until like you know Garden State in the two thousands. I think that's when it kind of exploded. That's what I was thinking, like around that era. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the interesting thing I think about the manic pixie dream girl is that she kind of has to be written by a male, Mm -hmm. and so. Lorelai yeah. being written by Amy Sherman Powell, you know, automatically sort of like transcends that trope. I think it's interesting too, like Lorelai's not a manic pixie dream girl, but I think that she seems close to the trope because all we label a lot of female characters who are like interesting in non-conventional ways as manic yeah. pixie dream girls, which I think speaks a lot to the way that we talk about female characters and like what they're allowed to be. Yeah. Like Lorelai is a confident character. Like she's she's extremely driven. She believes in herself, even though sometimes she doesn't. And she is very captivating and has a certain like presence about her that I think like it sort of enrages some people who watch the show. They're like, yeah. oh, Lorelai's super annoying. She moves through life too easily. And I think that that says something about the way we re- we react to female characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, which we can definitely talk about more throughout. Because uh, that's a central discussion, I think. Yeah, I'm just I'm glancing at I'm glancing at our notes here. 
Oh, you asked, can you imagine if your mom was late on your first day of school? Yeah, my mom was a late mom. Was your mom and a late I, mom? My parents uh, are early people. I like, I get an equal amount of anxiety, I think, being early and being late. I am a get there the second. I envy you. I'm an early person because I have such anxiety over being not extremely early because my parents are early people. My dad gets yeah. to the airport like four and a half hours early. Alfred does stuff like that. I, he, he would get to work when he worked a retail, like retail, he would yeah. get to work like 30 minutes. Early. Like you have a shift. Like you, like someone else is working your shift. If you yeah. get there 30 minutes early, like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, it becomes, I think less late throughout the series, but it, it's like a really big theme in these early episodes. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's, I like, I don't want to be too hard on Lorelai, but like, there's a lot. And even going back to like the opening scene with painting the toenails, there's a lot that does kind of get under my skin about her in this episode, because like, like she insists on painting Roy's toes, but then when Lane brings over a new CD, she's like, bye, just drops it. Does Rory <laughs> have like a half painted foot? Yeah. He goes to school tomorrow, like the next yeah. day. I think she does. does. Rory's not gonna finish her own toenails. No. And the like the whole point was that it was her idea, Lorelai's idea to paint her toes in the first place. And then she just like drops it to go listen to music with, you know, her teenage daughter's friend. See, it's interesting because this is why we're a good pair on the pod, because I think a lot of the stuff like that Lorelai does is charming. And yeah. I think that most people are a little more critical of it. Um, and that's why I like having somebody to be like, yeah, that stuff is objectively annoying. But I think that there, if there's an episode to be critical of Lorelai's behavior, this is the one. Yeah. Um, I think she airs too far over on this episode and like does objectively embarrassing and not great stuff. Yeah, but- um, The outfit is, you can't do that. No. no. Um, it's humiliating. Oh, but it was weird to me. I would never in a million years want my mom to go and looking like that. But I, but I do think that Rory, I mean, Rory has a point in that, like, I think the parents are expected to take, come in on the first day, but I would make something up. I'd be like, my yeah. mom had a meeting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would probably, even if my parents were expected to go in on the first day, I would have lied and wanted to go in myself. Yeah. Although I suppose it does say something about Lorelai that she is willing to embarrass herself <laughs> to help Rory feel more she comfortable. Is. And that's something that I love about Lorelai is that she always, and we'll talk about this later when it actually happens in the show, but like she constantly is willing to embarrass herself if it makes someone else more comfortable, especially Rory. Like she, yeah, a lot of the times she says weird things in conversation, especially with like Emily and Richard. It's because Rory said something that she was, that made Rory uncomfortable. And yeah. she's like, oh, let me just throw something out there to take the attention on me. Um, yeah, to like diffuse the situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I really like about Lorelai. And Rory does a version of that in like she does a very Lorelai <laughs> move at the end of her conversation with Headmaster Charleston when he like, you know, gives her that speech. And what does she say? She's like, oh, he had mentioned the lobster puffs earlier. Yeah. She's yeah. Like, she's like, not a big fan of the lobster puffs, huh? And that's yeah. a Lorelai line. And yeah. I think that Rory has picked up Rory has picked up, even though she doesn't use it that much, that way. Of sort of like deflecting uncomfortable situations that she realizes, you know, are kind of out of her control with humor. Yeah. What do you think about Emily's presence in, do you think it's a power move, like in a good way or a bad way? I think it's an insane thing to do. 
Um, I think that it's an, I, I think that it's completely appropriate for Emily's character. Yeah. I think it's an inappropriate thing to do as a grandmother, but I also find it completely believable. Yeah. Is what do you think? Yeah, I'm like I'm kind of torn on all of Emily's actions in okay. this yeah. episode. Like I found myself like agreeing with them throughout the episode and then later I was like yeah that was like overstepping and I think you know demonstrating a lack of boundaries that's going oh, yeah. to become a theme of in the show so I think she definitely does overstep and I think Lorelai is right that it's overstepping I also think that it's number one something Emily would absolutely do like I found that completely yeah. cool. and number two she makes some good points Rory should have more than two skirts yes <laughs> Can we talk about that? I know that's a little later in the episode, but like, I get that she doesn't need to have five skirts. That's ridiculous. But she's not going to help. Like, what if one of them does get really dirty and like yeah. splashing them a little more? Yeah. Um, there's a lot, I think, that Emily is right about with regard to the, the uniforms. Like, I mean, and I think th this becomes really apparent in um like season three I think when which is all about like Rory getting into college yeah. but Lorelai just does not understand no. the whole game that she is insisting on playing yes they like get into an Ivy League school game yes he's and so obsessed with it but she's so ignorant about it <laughs> And I think the show itself, and I'll talk about this as, so I used to work in college admissions. I did it all four years as an undergrad, like I was a volunteer. And I think the show itself is a little ignorant when it gets to like the third season about what it takes to get into a really good college. But I think that you make a really good point, which is that Lorelai is the one pushing for this elite college game and supporting Rory and, and pushing her to go to this elite school. But she also seems like she doesn't want Rory to perform the sort of yeah. behavior that's necessary to get those things like she yeah. wants Rory to be able to get into school like Shelton and succeed and get into a school like Harvard and succeed but also do it her own way like that involves yeah. not ascribing to any of those behaviors that those institutions demand and I think that that both works out for Rory and doesn't like that's both possible yeah. and impossible right like she has to play the game she can she, she's a strong sense of self, which we'll talk about. She can color outside the lines in some sense, but like some very basic things she does have to have. Like Emily's idea to get her high speed internet is a good idea. It is. Of and I shouldn't, like that to me is, it, you can push back on like, does she need a coat? Which like, yeah, she should get a coat. But like the high speed internet, I get that Emily doesn't, or Lorelai doesn't want Emily to pay for it but like come on that would be very yeah. helpful for her and then just like wanting Rory and I think part of it is selfish on Emily's behalf because the Gilmore family is like well known in the Chilton circles yes. but um so part of it is selfishly motivated I think like she doesn't want people saying oh that's um Emily yeah. Gilmore's granddaughter and she doesn't have the Chilton socks you know I didn't think about that but you're right yeah yeah, but also it's true. Like Rory already is coming in late. She already has a spotlight on her. Thor like embarrassed her on the first day. Yeah. Um, and then she does not have the money that these other kids have. Mm -hmm. And like wanting to do something that will help her be 
more accepted in this um, extremely wealthy milieu, I think is yeah. a good thing. Right. Um, but I also understand that what Lorelai is doing is that she doesn't want Rory to become a spoiled rich kid, you know, so. And I think that you're, you nailed it. I think you said it way better than I could have thought about it way better than I could have. And I think that there's a happy medium that maybe, I don't know if we're supposed to see it. I don't know who we're particularly supposed to side with here. I think it's Lorelai. Um, yeah, I but, think so. Yeah, I think it is. But I think that there's a happy medium between Rory's going to become super spoiled and, and buy into all this stuff and Rory's not going to buy into any of it. And I think that happy medium is high-speed internet and three screens, you know? Yes. <laughs> an extra skirt and a coat, okay. Yeah, and a coat. Like, that's, that's fine. I think we can yeah. say that's okay. Um, can we talk a little about Headmaster Charleston's remarks to Rory? <laughs> yeah, and whether or not that's like retaliation against Emily. So every time I watch this episode, that is like thing number one that sticks out to me is that yeah. I, I have always viewed his speech as completely unreasonable. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's a crazy way to approach someone who's about to start their first day of school here. I think it's unnecessarily mean. And yeah. I think it's, it's just really rude. Um, but when I watched it for recording this podcast, I thought about, for I think the first time, the fact that Emily's, what precedes it is that Emily makes this huge deal about, oh, Headmaster Charleston and I know each other. We're long-term family friends. He's your, yeah. he says like, I'm Richard's golf partner. So I think maybe Headmaster Charleston thinks, and I know you had said, this is your theory too. He kind of has to overcorrect for that impression that Emily gives like okay I know we just said all this like I know you I know the family but we're not going to go easy on you um I also think that he doesn't know what kind of kid Rory is like we know you come in knowing that Rory has a lot of integrity but he doesn't know Rory from anyone you know he doesn't know her from Adam like he could think that she's somebody who would love this sort of special treatment Mm -hmm. all of that being said I felt I still think the speech is a little too much yeah, I think partially it's just maybe some exposition for like, yes. this is what Chilton is. Exactly. Um, and it does, and, it sets up the, what we're supposed to, this, to, the Chilton mood and our expectations for Chilton. Yeah. And then also, you know, um, you know not to, not to <laughs> like be too personal or, but like, even when, before we started recording, we were kind of talking about these like expectations uh, in like higher education and how, like for me coming from um, Oklahoma, coming to a, I don't know if we want to say where we are getting our- I feel comfortable saying where we are. Do you feel comfortable? Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, So coming to UVA, there was sort of a distinct difference of like going from a small private, you know, university where I did my undergrad and my master's to this like huge research university. Yeah. Um, And, you know, nobody like sat me down and said, this is how things are going to be. But there was like a palpable change. Yes. An unspoken rule about that. So that's really interesting because, so I came from a large and not very great, I feel bad saying that um, because my teachers were fantastic, but we were just like a middle of the road public high school um, to, I went to Johns Hopkins for undergrad and I did not do very well in high school like comparatively to I think a lot of the people that were part of my college class 
like I was good at what I was good at and I was not good at math and science. And um, <laughs> I, it, I was so paranoid about the fact that I felt like I had overreached my own potential by getting into a school like that. Mm-hmm. And I was so freaked out that like they had such higher expectations for me that I was like petrified to go into college. And I ended up doing better in college than I did in high school. But like, I think that it worked out, but I also see sort of the value of, of sitting somebody down and saying, like being direct about the things that schools it's like that expect. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that having to learn the unwritten rules, like you were saying you did, is almost sort of like more elitist yeah. that it expects that you know all of these things without having to be told them. And that creates like a hierarchy between the people who are in these institutions all their lives and know this stuff and the people who don't and it it makes it harder for the people who don't know this stuff to succeed yeah for sure um and so even so like it it moves the plot forward in that it like details like okay this is Chilton um but it also I think it's it's kind of realistic in a sense in the sense that like he's just saying all of the, um, what's usually unspoken in situations like that, like moving to a higher echelon of an academic institution. Yeah. So So maybe kudos headmaster Charles. (laughs) Uh, You've changed my mind. At least I think you've, you've given me a really compelling framework to understand why it might be more appropriate than I thought. I also think now that you said that and mentioned just moving the plot along, I think it, tells the viewer that like the viewer may not be aware of all those expectations and the difference between a school like stars hollow high and chilton and those unspoken academic codes especially if the viewer is someone who hasn't gone to college yet yeah right um i think that it does the viewer a service by saying hey rory is going to a different type of place here with different expectations class-wise and academic wise and i think that'll be a persistent theme throughout the show Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, feeling like she has to how she navigates her sense of self with the different type of classed institutions that she's put in by virtue of where her intelligence can get her. Yeah, I really like Rory's exp- explanation of why she wants to be a journalist here. Yeah, it's the clearest explanation we get for it throughout the series. Um, in I'm kind of like a Rory shouldn't be a journalist truther because I think that. <laughs> Throughout most of the show, she demonstrates like no um, compelling reason for why she wants to be a journalist rather than anything else. Like, I think Rory would be a good professor, but I would never need journalists. But I really like what she says here. So much of Stars Hollow, what we see is we're like, oh, wow, this is somewhere I would really, really want to live. And it's somewhere Rory really, really enjoys. And it's a strong home base for her. But I think there's something fascinating about the idea that she introduces, which is that she wants to see other things. Ah, right, right. She has this this strong home base, but she also wants to go out and have new experiences. And I think, I wish we saw that a little more of Rory, that part of Rory a little more throughout the series. Like really the only times we see it is when she talks about travel. Right. I really like that idea of her wanting to see new things and make sure she sees something of note and significance. Yeah, that's a really good point that I, first of all, I didn't realize that there was like a whole that there was a Rory shouldn't be a journalist no it's it's just me oh (laughs) there's no movement Catherine it's it's just me (laughs) well you could you should start the movement and I will join you because I just realized when you said that that I've always just taken it for granted because Rory says she wants to be a journalist but you're right like I mean we'll get into it 
um, later in like season five yeah. where she starts to display some, you know, like I, I, I skill or whatever, but like questions for her own journalistic. Yeah, but but yeah, it's never really as clearly articulated as it is here. Um, and then I actually forgot that that she has this like travel bug. Yeah, season one, and that will come up. I think is the is it the next episode where she goes golfing? With yes, Richard? next episode. Yeah, so yes, we'll no. talk about that more. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting too. Like, it's it's kind of like a Lorelai esque. Um, it, it it shades into Lorelai's personality in interesting ways, which like Lorelai wanted to get out of this world that she was raised in and see different things. And yeah. Rory also wants to to not get out of the world she was raised in, but see different stuff. And I think that it's less of like a rebellion thing mm -hmm. than like being interested in different places and different institutions. And that'll take her various places throughout the show. Like it'll take her, yeah. take her to Chilton, takes her to Harvard. It'll take her to stuff like being involved in the Life and Death Brigade. And she yeah. has to figure out how to navigate these new places and institutions without losing her sense of self all throughout the show. And I think that's one of the most interesting dynamics in Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Do you want to talk about how Rory has a strong sense of self now, or do you want to wait till? Well, I think we can bring it up with the Paris stuff. So let's talk about Paris. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> what do you think about Paris and how she's introduced here, Catherine? Well, so one of the first thoughts I had before I rewatched this episode was, um, I put it in the notes, um, like pre, yeah, pre-watching the episode was I find the dynamic, like the mean girl dynamic, like such a fictional thing. And I don't know if I'm, yeah, like, I, I mean, I don't know if, if someone went to like a really small high school and there were like popular kids that everybody knew, maybe they would say that I'm wrong. I, I, I don't know, but it's like, I, I think we talked about Sweet Valley High mm -hmm. in the first um, episode. Um, which influenced uh, the book I wrote. A part of the reason I wrote that book is because I think that is such a weird thing. It's something I've never seen or heard of in real life. Yeah, well, I had the same experience in high school. Like I watched a lot of teen movies and I watched shows and I expected high school to be that sort of clicky yeah. environment. My high school was not like that at all. Like there were definitely people who were more involved in things and thus they were more known. And I definitely yeah. had some like interpersonal conflicts with friends, but I never had like a yeah. mean girl that I clashed with who was like in a different social echelon. We didn't even have social echelons really. It was like fighting with my friends. And I think yeah. for us, it was because we did go to large public high schools. But I remember mm -hmm. like almost not being disappointed that my high school wasn't like mean girls, but just being like, wow, they television and movies for teens did not prepare me for my actual high school dynamics at all, which yes. were pretty non-dramatic. Yes, I had a lot of drama in high school, unfortunately, but it was <laughs> like, it was friend friend, drama. It, yeah, like in drama, um, you know, boy drama, boy drama. I mean, yes, I was bad with boy drama. <laughs> Yeah, but um, but you know, like I I just kept waiting for it to happen. And and like you said, there were people who were more known, but the weird thing is the people who were more known weren't necessarily like cool. Right. They were just like in um like student council or yes, that's kind of what I mean, like people who were like class president. Yeah, my I was um I do not associate 
or like at all with being a theater kid. But <laughs> I was not a theater kid either. <laughs> no, but I was in drama. Okay. Um, and so we we had a good drama program, and so the drama kids were more known. But I never, um, I wouldn't, I never felt like like popular. So, and I, you know, w- we will talk about this again when we talk about the puffs um, and like the difference between the puffs click and um, Paris Madeline and Louise. Yeah. But I feel like, yeah, this notion that there would be this like click of like wealthy girls who are bullies and who have the capacity to make your life a living hell. Like that's what Paris says. Yes. But I was like, I just, I've never experienced that. So do you think Madeline Louise and Paris are set up as necessarily popular? Because that's not the impression I got it's like they're mean girls but they're mean girls because they're like Paris is a mean girl but Paris is a mean girl because she's an ultra achiever yes and that's what I think is super fascinating and you brought that up before we started recording and it blew my mind because I realized that is a dynamic that's not represented um in like any YA anything other than Gilmore Girls right like yeah go on yeah, it's it's not Mean Girls or Heather's or whatever. It's like the, this acad- academic achievement. And Madeline and Louise are just amazing characters. Oh, I love them. <laughs> I love um, Madeline and Louise. And they are like shown as being like less driven um, yeah, yeah. than Paris. But I mean, every anybody's less driven. Than less driven than Paris. <laughs> Albert Einstein was less driven than Paris. Um, but. So I've always kind of wondered, like, what is, what is their role in the high school, like, hierarchy? I think um, that's unclear. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're yeah. probably, like, somewhat popular, um, but they're not, like, the popular girls. Yeah, if anything, maybe Madeline and Louise are maybe popular, and then Paris is their friend from elementary school who they still hang out with or something. I mean, I think it makes sense from a show perspective because they're like her fun, more fun foils. Yeah. Uh, but I think that yeah, it doesn't really make sense. I think Louise is smart. Like in other yeah. episodes, they, especially in the first season, they allude to that a lot. But she doesn't try. Yeah. Um, and I think that Louise and Paris maybe like have more of an affinity as like smarter girls. And though Louise has like stopped trying maybe since, you know, middle school or ninth grade. And Madeline is like, more Louise's friend that she hooks up with boys with. Yeah, yeah. Kind of form like an uneasy alliance in that like in high school, you don't really find your soulmates most of the time as far as friends, mm-hmm. but like you're all hanging out together because you have some stuff in common. Yeah. I think if I analyzed, or if someone were to objectively analyze my high school friends and I, they'd be like, why did these people hang out together? It's like, yeah. kind of like had similar vibes. <laughs> yeah. And especially I think in a smaller school. Yeah you know, you get the impression that these people have been in, in school together since elementary school. Oh, yeah. They, you know, they've created bonds a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, and they may not even know why they're the three that hang out together. Yeah. Um, fun fact though that I want to bring up. Oh, you know, okay. You tell your Louis story and then I want to tell my headmaster Charleston story. Oh, I forgot. Yes. Okay. So, um, this is dumb, the, the dumbest story no, and feel, feel free to edit this. <laughs> I will not edit it out. Listeners, this is not being edited out. It's embarrassing for me though, but it's okay. okay so, um, so 
like I was on this streak around Christmas that I wanted to watch as many like holiday movies as possible. That's not embarrassing. That's cool. And well, it becomes okay. it's, it's about to get embarrassing. Um, the JTT I'll Be Home for Christmas is one that I I I tried and and then failed. And then the second one was um the Disney Channel original movie. Um, oh no, oh no, I've forgotten the name of it. It's okay. We'll look it up later. It's about basketball. Anyway, it's apparently about a UVA uh, alum. What? <laughs> it's funny. Um, but I was tell- I was like joking with my brother that I was going to try to watch this. It's a Hanukkah movie. And I was like, this is so cool. That's like, great. It's finally like Hanukkah representation in holiday movies, which there usually isn't. Yes. Um, and, and so, so I, I watched that and my brother was like, oh, I remember that movie. Um, but I most clearly remember the Disney Channel original movie, Double Teamed. Oh my God. And I was like, oh, okay. So I decided to watch that one day when I had a migraine and I'm like laying back, barely watching, like mostly just watching to tell my brother that I'm watching so to laugh. And, and I hear this voice cause I'm not like, I'm just laying there cause I have a headache and I hear this voice and I was like, what? That's, I know that voice. And I couldn't place it at first. And it was the actress who played the leads. And oh she my God. plays a, a mean girl, mean basketball player I love um, who bullies the two main characters in uh, Disney's, uh, the Disney Channel original movie, Double Team. It's and they, oh, sorry. Of course, they become friends um, by the end. But she has dark hair <laughs> in that movie. But, like, that voice is so distinct. It's funny yeah. because- Louise is in like two things ever because I have looked this up and it's hilarious that you've seen like both of them. <laughs> I love that for you. I almost texted you and then you I was like, me. I would have to admit that I was watching the Disney Channel original movie double teamed and I'm not ready to do that. <laughs> but now I am publicly. I'm glad that you feel like we've number one reached the level where you can admit that and number two that you feel comfortable or at least semi-comfortable admitting it publicly. I will admit to watching the most embarrassing stuff of all time. I've seen Rock of Love like 10 times. So this is a safe space, okay, for embarrassing content watching. I have a story about Headmaster Charleston uh, that is similar in that I saw him in something I did not expect him to see or to see him in. So last Christmas, my dad, my dad and I like to go to plays and um, there was an adaptation on Broadway of To Kill a Mockingbird, which both my dad and I in, quite enjoy as a book, as if that's like a controversial opinion. And it's <laughs> a great one. if you haven't heard of it, check it out, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but we went to see the Broadway adaptation of it. But the guy who played the judge, I was like, he's in something I've seen. It was Headmaster Charleston. Oh, man. 20 seconds to figure it out. And I almost fell out of my seat. And my, we hit intermission. My dad was like, what do you think? I was like, dad, the guy who plays the judge is headmaster Charleston from Gilmore Girls. And he was like, okay, <laughs> no, this is very important to me. Oh, I would have freaked out. That's awesome. <laughs> no, I'm, he's like, so I looked it up. He's like a famous actor, but, um, or, you know, he's doing well, but I was like, yeah, look at him getting like a feature, major Broadway role. Uh, but I freaked out because number one, he looks exactly the same <laughs> not aged at all. And number two, he did a great, you know, he was great. But also number three, like my dream is to see Gilmore Girls people and stuff that I did not expect to see them in. And I was like, oh, what a joy for me. But so I think that 
what's really interesting to me about the Paris stuff and that we were alluding to is that Paris is a different kind of villain in a high school show. And yeah. I think that signals that this is like a different kind of show that is going to involve high school because Paris doesn't dislike Rory because Rory's pretty or because she's like, oh, new and it might be a threat to her popularity. She dislikes her because from the minute she sees those transcripts, she thinks Rory is a potential academic equal and rival. Yeah. And that's yeah. important to Paris and that's why she doesn't like her. And I think yeah. you were saying like, before we started recording that you can't remember ever a show or movie where that's the conflict between the girls. No, I'm, I've been racking my brains and I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. Even like, even in more recent yeah, TV. It's rarely ever that. And yeah. That's what matters to Paris. Like Tristan, you know, oh, and we'll talk about Tristan too. Tristan becomes like a secondary concern with Paris and Rory, but like Paris, what matters to Paris overall, above all, is academics. And Paris is kind of like a weird alternate universe version of Rory, where she's yeah. like, Rory, if she didn't, if she were just as smart, but she didn't have a strong sense of self and a good relationship with her parents and community. She's like, Rory, if she had all of the, not humanizing aspects, because Paris is very human, but all of yeah. the, like the mitigating aspects that would mitigate her ambition a little bit stripped mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, like, as we'll find out, Paris has almost no close personal relationships. No. Yeah, you're right. And there is also this sense that Madeline and Louise, that she doesn't trust them no, later. I mean, doesn't. yeah, we'll get into that later. But there's a reason that she and Laura, um, she and Rory <laughs> become so Laurel. bonded. Yeah. And yeah, and I think Rory will come to represent to Paris, like, the fact that she can have like a meaningful intellectually driven relationship with someone that's a real friendship. Like it'll mm-hmm. become a running joke later in the series where Paris is like, Rory's my best friend in Paris. And Rory's like, I don't even know if we're friends. Yeah. That's like to Paris, that's what she wants is someone she can connect with who's an academic equal and who they can talk about literature and they can talk about current events and they can, they're both ambitious and driven. And I think that those are the kind of female friendships in my life that have endured. And I think that that's what Paris represents for Rory and vice versa, or will come to represent. Yeah. And like, there's lots of ways of representing female friendship on screen. Um, It's obviously, you know, it's usually through a male love interest. Um, And that's, you know, how female characters, you know, unfortunately will relate um to each other and Gilmore Girls really breaks the mold in a way that that like doesn't even feel radical it just makes sense yes but then after the fact you realize how radical it is exactly and I think that's a sign of how well the show works that you're not like oh wow that's crazy while you're watching it because you're like oh that's it makes so much sense according to the logic of the show but when you when you sit back like we're doing you're like that's something you never see It doesn't feel forced because it feels like it organically comes from Rory's character. Yeah. And I, I don't want to like, I'm, I'm not trying to do a, um, like read neurodivergence on any character. (laughs) Um, I want to like voice that, but something that, um, that stood out to me, I read something ago that said that like neurodivergent 
or neurotypical people bond over social situations and neurodivergent people bond over common interests and like bond over common interests. Yes. And that's always been how I formed relationships. And so, um, I've just sort of noticed that in ever since I read that, I've noticed that in movies and, and TV, like, okay, well, how are people relating to each other and how are they bonding? And Gilmore Girls is one of the the only examples I can think of where people are just really bonded by their common yes strong common interests. Like you pointed pointed out, Rory has a really strong sense of self. Um and Paris obviously does too. And that's so cool that we had this representation on screen in 1999. And I love what you said about bonding over common interests because I think that explains something that a lot of people who don't, are big fans of the show get annoyed about with Gilmore Girls, which is the references. And they're like, oh, they just throw in these pop culture references. Like nobody talks like that. But I don't think that's the purpose of the pop culture references in the show. Yeah. I think it's because it's to show that they, Rory and Lorelai and, and their friends are bonded over like a common vocabulary of shared interests. Yeah. They're yeah. not just throwing out Grey Gardens references and Brady Bunch Friday Hour references because like those are things they know when they're trying to show off. That's yeah. a way, a lens, those are lenses through which they interpret the world and yeah. ways that they talk to each other through talking about these pieces of pop culture and literature and movies, et cetera. And I think that, Rory and Paris we see bonding over those things as well like those are yeah. shared ways that they're gonna talk about the world and shared ways that they're gonna like analyze each other and and remember, like I know this is going three seasons ahead but when they watch the power of myth on spring break <gasps> yes the oh moment I just love that that's one of my favorite moments in the show yeah. um they're, they're bonded <laughs> through this common vocabulary of academic stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, literature and, and like encyclopedic knowledge. And I love that. Um, of course, like we were saying right now, they don't like each other too much. And we've been talking a lot about Rory's strong sense of self. But I think for me, a lot of that in the episode came through like watching this and being like, wow, I would not have been able to stand up to Paris like that or I would have been interested in like placating her or, um, you know, just sort of cowing. And I think Rory has such a supportive relationship with her mother that can also be weird and such a strong sense of who she is from being in Stars Hollow. And she's just really supported that she has like the internal fortitude to not let herself be intimidated by Paris. I mean, she is a little bit, but not, you know, she can stand up to her and to stay, true to who she is, even through this Chilton experience. Yeah. That'll be tested in later seasons of the show. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> I think definitely, and I think that's super interesting when it happens, but I think right now we see Rory in a different light than we saw her in the first episode. And she becomes more than the character who's like cute and sweet next mm -hmm. to like Lorelai's louder, more confident version. She's confident in her own way too. Yeah, I mean, the Martin Luther, like stealing the- that. Yes. And we see that she's competitive too. Yeah. Yeah. Like we learned a lot about Rory in this episode that I think gets overlooked when people talk about her character. Can we talk also about something you and I both noticed with like when Rory destroys Paris's diorama? Heather, yeah. what sticks out to both of us about this? <laughs> That's insane. And even like Alfred was watching or he like walked past and he was like, wait, what is wrong with Paris that I was like, Okay, so what we both pinged on and what Alfred 
pins on is like, why doesn't Paris tell the teacher that Rory destroyed her diorama? She could just, or like it fell. She could just bring in the pieces and be like, look, I clearly did this. Mark me down incomplete right now, but like I did it. I'll go home and fix it. Why does Paris, who's obsessed with grades and how she's going to graduate and, you know, getting into the best school in the world or whatever, why does she, why is she willing to take the fall for this? I, yeah, I, I, do you have an answer? Absolutely (laughs) not. I don't even think it makes that much sense within the logic of the show. You said like, has a very strong no snitching policy. (laughs) That's all I could think of. And, but I mean, I was like joking at first. Or I, I was like, snitches, right. Paris knows snitches get stitches. But, but like, what is, I, else is the motivation? I think it might be like kind of like somewhat related to that, just in, in the sense that maybe there is the strong sense of personal responsibility at Chilton. Okay. Okay. So that okay. like, if she was bringing the diorama, like, like right before class maybe that would have been her fault like well why didn't you bring it this morning like why was it was it so last minute or something that the teacher I think that's actually a compelling explanation that the teacher would have been like well that's no excuse like yeah she would have been like Miss Geller stop blaming other people um yeah it an earlier or put it in a safe place and then like that would have been more embarrassing to Paris yes. than immediately just taking responsibility and being like I didn't do it yeah um that's a good explanation or that she doesn't want to give Rory like any credit for her actions even when it's negative like she I don't know that yeah yeah like Um, she doesn't even matter yeah exactly you're nothing you're nothing to me um who knows it is so weird like Paris you would get a zero you'd end up getting a zero you put real water in that thing yeah, I think later seasons, Paris would 100% have just voiced oh, yeah. the blame on her. It's her fault. I've been like, you, Rory, I'm, we're both pointing wildly. It was <laughs> this, yeah, it's the only weird, inconsistent Paris moment in the episode. I think Liza Wheel, Liza Weil, um, comes out so strong in this yeah. episode. I think she kills it. We have the, I think such a huge part of the reason Chilton works is Paris. Yeah. Um, from scene one that she's in. And I yeah. think that it's like the set and Paris and we have chilling. We're like, we yeah. leave this episode with a completely full and like vivid sense of what Chilton is. The opposite perhaps of what is Stars Hollow High. Um, yeah, right. We know yeah. what Chilton is. And um, do we want to talk a little bit about Tristan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to. We have to. <laughs> what are your Tristan thoughts? I mean, oh, Chad Michael Murray, One Tree Hill. He was um, like, he does not have the hot guy hair. No, um, he doesn't. He has rich douche hair. Rich douche hair, but he's still like, my oh. only problem with Tristan is I'm just like, oh, here's a like capital uh, H, capital G, hot guy. Right. You this know? Is Chad Michael Murray. Like, Chad Michael Murray is very physically attractive. Yeah, but like to a point where it's almost unrealistic. Yeah, or just I don't know. I I I okay. I, I'm saying all this like I hate this character. I actually really like Tristan. <laughs> You're a secret um, Tristan stan. 
Yeah, I am. I think he's a, I think he's a super interesting character. And as you point out, he's kind of a proto Logan. Yeah. I think Tristan is proto Logan. This is a strong opinion of mine. I find him really fascinating. Uh, weirdly, like his whole storyline later in like season two, I think um, I, I like really like it. Even though it comes out of the fact that they need to write him out really quickly. Yes. But I really like but, that episode in which they do so. Yeah. And now remind me, was he on One Tree Hill or did, did they write him out so he could go to One Tree Hill? I think, and I will have to double check this, but I've always assumed based on how it happens, they wrote him out because he has to go to One Tree Hill. Yeah. I think the same thing happened with Jared Padlacki's for Supernatural. But I guess I just like find him so one-dimensional and it's just like, oh, oh he's just this hot, rich asshole. He is extremely one-dimensional. And I think when they introduce Logan, who we have not mentioned this and we have an unpopular opinion, we both really like Logan. Uh, I don't know. I can't help it. <laughs> Logan, we like him. I don't think he's endgame for Rory, but I like him as a character a lot. And I think he's a good boyfriend eventually. Um, but I think Logan, when he's introduced, you can see what they learned from Tristan. Oh, right, yeah. There's nothing creepy about Logan and Tristan is creepy. Yeah. And I think it's because Tristan is immediately introduced as being like weirdly sexually interested in and like gross to Rory and he, Logan's not super interested in Rory at the beginning like he thinks she's cute but um and he's also introduced as like her intellectual equal yeah yeah and we don't get that from Tristan at all and he's Logan also has like a really infectious like Matt Suzutri does a really good job with that role because I think he could easily slip into being an asshole you don't like and yeah. he, does, he never does or rarely does and he has such an infectious energy, the yeah. Logan character, that you have to like him. Whereas Tristan's got none of that. No, I mean, Tristan, I guess you could even say is kind of not the equivalent of the dad, the Chilton dad. Oh, that's interesting. But it's just sort of like, here are the men at Chilton. Here's this like, <laughs> like yeah, that's true. <laughs> investment banker dad from the 80s, uh, divorced dad. And then here's the, you know, your typical yeah um Chilton boy uh I don't know the, the, yeah the first it, the whole like Mary thing bothers me it bothers me too Catherine do you believe that this would be something they would call Rory um what I'm trying to remember the only other time that I've heard the term Mary actually being used oh you um, on the office ah um, on pretzel day when, um, like Bob Vance is mad that Michael and Stanley are he calls like, him Mary, like an effeminate Mary. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Or I thought it just meant like goody goodies. Like, because remember, um, Phyllis is trying to cut in line uh, and they're like, no, 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 no. You get to the back of the line. He's like, what a pair of Mary's. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't think about it that way. Other than that, I've never heard that term used. And I just thought like, I didn't go to Catholic school. So maybe it's a Catholic school thing. Maybe it's a East Coast thing. It's not. I mean, I went to one year of Catholic middle school. Um, and I know we <laughs> talked about like how Chilton seems like it might be a Catholic school in the beginning and then it's not. Though yeah. I guess it is like, has strong, hardcore, like wasp Episcopalian vibes. Um, but I think that to me, no high school boy would ever have been clever enough to come up with that. No. <laughs> Even at an academic school like Chilton, like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I'd be curious though, if, if, if anybody knows. 
Anybody <laughs> listening out there? Anybody listening, tell us. To is me, that an insult? Is that an insult? Like, do people say that? Um, to me, it struck me as something that, like, maybe it, one of the people in the writer's room had had that happen to them. Yeah. yeah. Detail too, because it's very specific. And it's like, that had to come from somewhere, but it's also not something I can picture most teenage boys saying. Yeah. But maybe it's a thing. Um, I would be interested <laughs> in yours. Contribute, pl- please tell us about your merry experiences. Also, if anyone has any questions or things they want to opine about, we would love to hear from you. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I think that I like the point you made that you were like, these are the two types of men at Chilton, 80s and <laughs> dad and um, Chad Michael Murray. I also too want to mention, so Lorelai comes around and she's pretty strongly opposed to the beginning to the idea that like, she's not going to date the Chilton dad. And to me, that makes, you know, it makes sense. Like, okay, she's not going to, you know, subject her daughter to that. Two episodes later, she's all in on the idea of dating a Chilton (laughs) who is specifically Rory's current teacher which I will get on my soapbox about this. I think it's wildly inappropriate. And I think it's way worse than dating a parent. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to to just resort to Lorelai so immature, Lorelai so annoying. But I I definitely think that there's like, there is an interesting kind of like codependent, like boundary list like yeah. I don't I don't want to like diagnose her with anything but yeah. like element to Lorelai that is not that is is problematic and is it just her being immature um yeah. and I think I really felt bad for Emily in the hair salon scene I thought that was so inappropriate and so cruel and it's funny though because it's the same it's like the same thing Emily did it's overstepping yeah. a boundary humiliating you in a place that like you were you know showing up unexpectedly and embarrassing you in a situation a social situation um and I'm definitely like we talked about this uh last week but I'm definitely watching for these Lorelai um yes Emily parallels and I had never thought about that until this rewatch that like they kind of do the same thing to each other it's such a opening in the end Catherine that's a brilliant observation and now I'm thinking about the fact that so much of Lorelai's behavior that is like commonly attributed to being like a Lorelai pathology comes from Emily like a lot of the inappropriate boundary less stuff that we that she does that people say like oh Lorelai's so immature is Emily behavior and no one ever says Emily's immature about that because I think we're supposed to like we're supposed to root for Lorelai as a character much more than we're supposed to root for Emily even though we do root for Emily um, but yeah, Laura, Emily constantly is overstepping her boundaries. I mean, she's going to, she's going to invite Rory's schoolmates to a party for Rory that Rory did not ask for in like two yeah. episodes from now. Um, my classic example of Emily overstepping her boundaries is when she goes to Christopher that one time and says, oh, oh yeah, break up. I mean, this is seasons later says you have to break up Lorelai and Luke's relationship. Like the reason yeah. But also the reason Lorelai wanted to leave her house in the beginning of, you know, before the show is that she felt like Emily was suffocating her and not allowing her to have her own life and constantly trying to control Lorelai's life and intruding on it, which is the same thing we rag on Lorelai for doing. So I think that that's a fascinating reading and I think a really important one to understanding the dynamics of the show, which is that Lorelai doesn't do this because she's immature necessarily. She does it because that's what she learned to do. 
And even as she's rebelling against Emily, she replicates those dynamics in I think a less harmful psychologically, but maybe more visible way with Rory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting how overstepping boundaries can be can be like read as controlling yeah. or it can be read as fun, yes. you know, or like lax on her. Yeah. But it's the same, it's the same thing. It's the same, like, um, like, I guess it's a, a narcissistic view of the world. It's like, there's no separation between me and the rest of the world. So I've either got to control it or I've got to just like insert myself in it. Yeah, or if we, yeah, if we want to just refer to it in a different way too, it could just be like a framework of interpreting the world too. Like, yeah, right, right. Mention of me. Um, I think that's fascinating too, because like we often say, like we we interpret Emily through the controlling framework and and Lorelai through the controlling in a different way that can be read as like she doesn't give any rules to Rory, but yeah. it's that same thing. It's them imposing what they want. Yeah. on the other person and what how yeah. they think the other person would want to be treated based on how they would want to be treated exactly yeah smart I love how you how you notice that it manifests in different ways that look very different like strict suffocating cool mom not strict at all yeah it's just like different manifestations of the same yeah like, uh, yeah I don't know and it's it'll be interesting to like go forward now thinking about because Richard's so different too. Like as Lorelai always mentions him as trying to be controlling, I don't see Richard as particularly controlling at all. Richard's a no. different type of weird parenting thing. Yeah, for sure. More almost like absentee. Yes. Mm-hmm. As will will be established, I think, later in this. Oh, maybe even in the next episode, because that's a Richard-centric. Yeah, I love that episode. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, the last thing I wanted to bring up before we go into segments is that this is the episode in which the Lorelai Luke dynamic of like yes. each other is made explicit. And I think more explicit than like, it will be made at any other point in the show, really. I mean, not like explicit, like you always see it, but they like almost outwardly state it here in a way that it's usually implied through like acting choices and other people saying stuff. Um, what do you think of the fact that they use the Chilton dad in order to establish that? Um. It was, I found it a little cringy on Lorelai's. Like, I was like, come on, this is so transparent. She's fishing for, she's often fishing for Luke to tell her that she like that he likes her. Yes. And he just can't Um, do it. No, when she, when he's, I forget how, what what he says, but she's like, the guy who asked me out. And I'm like, ah. Lorelai, you didn't have to bring that up. Yeah. She's like pushing back Um, the fact that he's old and gross. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. Like, are, are you a Luke Lorelai? Like, are you a fan of that relationship? I actually am. Um, yeah. but I, uh, are you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But part of me feels like I accept the Luke Lorelai relationship as in the same way that I accept Rory being a journalist, just it- because because it's it's supposed to be yeah it's supposed to be that it is what it is um Luke is not my favorite Lorelai boyfriend weirdly who's your favorite Lorelai boyfriend uh, Max oh my see I actually don't like Max and I know that's a <gasps> really controversial opinion I think I it's love he behaves so inappropriately I mean I think as much as Lorelai behaves inappropriately with starting that relationship 
in my most recent rewatch, I noticed that like Max pushes for it really hard and seems to be like disregarding his, sorry, I didn't mean to slander your guy. No, I'm, I'm, uh, the face I made was because you're right. And he I never... his professional boundaries and his like obligations as a, as a teacher. I think it, it, it's really his, not his fault, but like it's his it's, error. It is. You're right. Like he's the one who should have enforced that bound. Oh man. Okay. I, this is exciting to me. We'll talk about this more. Like he's the, when we get to the episode, he's the one who says like, we should go out in the first place. Lorelai is attracted to him, but she's prepared not to act on it. And I think she probably maybe would have gotten close, but not actually did it. Or like maybe super inappropriately, like kissed him once. But Max yeah. is the one who keeps pushing for them to go out and says explicitly, like, I'm attracted to you. Yeah, I think that to me, that is a real, I mean, and you and I come from this from a teaching perspective, but like, you are not supposed to do that at all. No. Yeah, wow. Okay, this is this is exciting. Because okay. I've actually never, ever thought about Max meeting in any other way except being like dreamy. <laughs> dreamy, he's super hot. Um, yeah. I do really like the idea though that you said like we're supposed to accept Lorelai and Luke because the show wants us to accept Lorelai and Luke. And yeah. I think that the later seasons kind of deal with that, which is like how much do Lorelai and Luke have in common when they first start dating? Mm-hmm. I think the revival actually like kind of resolves that problem in a way. Like mm-hmm. I think I buy them more convincingly as a couple in the revival than I do at any other point after they get together, even after even as the revival is trying to show them like working through growing pains, I think they work on a level of like day-to-day chemistry. Yeah. The way that Lorelai works with nobody else versus like necessarily like on paper compatibility. Yeah. I actually, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I am a really big fan of Jason. I love Jason. That may perhaps be our most controversial opinion on the pod. Yeah. Um, I love him as a character. I think that obviously he and Lorelai weren't going to end up together, but I love the idea of putting somebody, Lorelai, with somebody who's weird and quirky, like she's weird and quirky, who you would never expect her to date. Yes. Um, Okay, but back to, but back to Luke. I mean, Luke is, I find his whole vibe very attractive. Oh, he's super hot. You know, and like, vibe is hot. Yeah. Um, one thing that I'm somewhat unclear about is, is, does Rachel come up in season one? Yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. So I just rewatched it a couple of days ago. I rewatched season one. Um, yeah, so she comes towards like the second half of season one. Right. I, I feel like the show is a little unclear about how involved Luke and Lorelai have been in each other's lives. It's extremely unclear and it is at various points in the show, very different. Yeah. This season, um, like, they weren't really, like, they're just becoming friends over the past couple of years. Later seasons make it heavily want you to think that they've been really good friends the whole time. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of addressed later, like, Lorelai says something like, how did I not notice Rachel? And they were like, well, you had a kid. I'm like, okay. Well, I don't, I mean, it's- I don't buy that. <laughs> yeah. And Gilmore Girls has a loose relationship with continuity. Um, yeah. That's not a novel observation. Everybody knows that. Um, I think it has strong emotional continuity. Like very rarely do I feel like Gilmore Girls is trying to make me feel something that it hasn't earned or that yeah. I feel in, to- in the sh- like the consistent tone of the show. Um, I think they're 
they put a much stronger emphasis on emotional continuity and are willing to throw out actual factual continuity when the emotional yeah. continuity is more important, which I'm fine with. All right. So what, what, yeah. Should we do segments or segments? is there anything else to? No, I think, and I think a lot of the stuff we still have to talk about will come up in segments. Do you want to start? Should we start with fashion? Like we did yeah. this um, big episode for fashion. I feel like I have kind of less to say about fashion this week than I did last week, just because so much of it is, you know, um, Rory in her uniform. True. But um, yeah, Lorelai's, you you pointed out Lorelai's outfit is on point. Yeah. So we her did chunky heels, her makeup, everything. So we did talk a lot about the fashion in the beginning, like when we talked about Lorelai's ridiculous cowboy outfit and <laughs> they threw together like the worst outfit you could possibly wear. Um, but the non-belted coat. <laughs> Lorelai's suit that she does eventually put on and the, the, the skirt suit and that she's planning on wearing is impeccable. One yeah. of my favorite Lorelai outfits the entire series. She looks so good. The makeup yeah. is great. The hair is awesome. The lighting that's uncanny in the kitchen, like the warm lighting, it makes her look unbelievable. I love that everybody clowns on her in the beginning for the cowboy outfit and then like compliments her later by sort of undermining her and when she changes me like that's what you should have worn yes yeah oh I also want to point out this is when we first get speaking of like kitchen scenes this is our first appearance of Jackson oh yes you and I both really like I think a lot of people don't like Jackson I can't make heads or tails I don't know yeah I love him I think he and Melissa McCarthy have great chemistry together they do. I, yeah. I love that Suki gets a guy who genuinely cares about her and they are in a great relationship throughout the series. I think that's really important and I love them together. I love their banter and it feels really believable. And yeah. I buy into them not because the show tells us to, but because I like them. Yeah, me too. Um, oh, one thing that I don't even know what these are called. Suki wears a lot of these, like, they're not do rags, but they're like <laughs> bandana things, handkerchiefs. Um, that, I remember that was a thing. I wore a lot of those. That was a thing. That was absolutely a thing. And I don't think that's being brought back in the nineties revival. Um, nobody wants to bring those up again, but they look really cute on Suki. They totally do. And I, I get that she's a chef, but that was a legit fashion thing. Oh yeah. It was, she's, but you're supposed to see her as like, not just a chef, but she's also like cute. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I had totally forgotten about those. And you could, you know, you could wear a bandana or a scarf or whatever, but then they also had the ones that you could just like buy at Claire's. <laughs> they had like a string. And then I think that's what she's wearing in both of these episodes. And they're cute. holders too, that had like a scarf on each side of them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like it was a, it was like a hair tie and they had like scarf coming out of it. They still, yes. sell, yeah. And like wearing oh. a scarf on the wrist. Yes. Oh. And the scarf to your purse that's coming back I've seen that that's yeah. right oh man I totally forgot about that too that was like an Hermes thing I think that was like, an Hermes thing yes yeah. because like the Hermes scarves tied to the Birkin yeah and like the Hermes scarves just period were a huge thing um and I think it, it's funny that we're we're talking about Hermes because that will oh, obviously that will a big deal yeah. I love the Birkin plot. I think it's so funny. Though um, that's Rory's worst hair era. So it is painful for me to think about that. <laughs> side bangs. And I'm a side bangs person. I have side bangs, but like something about them on Rory is not good. <laughs> um, we wanted to talk about, so tell, tell our audience, if you don't mind, what your husband suggested about like <laughs> a segment we should have that we already kind of have. 
he goes, you know what you should do? You, instead of doing a Gilmore Girls podcast, you should do a podcast called Killmore Girls. And it should be as if you don't know what Gilmore Girls is about and you think it's a true crime show. I love the idea of Gilmore Girls as a true crime show because I like, I, there's so many moments where it could have gone like very weirdly differently. Yes. And he was like, you should just play it like you've never heard of the show before. And, but somebody told you it was a true crime show. And so you're like, who's going to get killed? What's the mystery? And you should look for clues. And I was like, that is amazing. Um, we should do that as a segment though. Not even necessarily yes. true crime, but like at what points in each episode does Gilmore Girls feel like it's a different genre of show? Yes. Like, it's like true crime or it feels like it could be like, like, I think if they had kept Kirk for the entire series showing up as different characters, <laughs> it's like a very Twin Peaksy move. Yes. Um. So I, um, I kind of wanted to talk about this article, but, um, but we have no time. Um, and I don't even know. I think I forgot to tell you that um, I was even interested in talking about it. But it's called "Why Gilmore Girls Endures." It's from the New York I Times. Really like that article, I've read it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a moment when Amy Sherman Palladino says that she like didn't want the show to go the way of most CW or WB shows which was that they would have these insane, like dramatic plot twists. Yeah, so she, so what she said was, she was like, I don't, didn't want the storyline to become who killed Suki? <laughs> we should so I was like, all right, kill our girl. Did we do who killed Suki? Um, I love that. So like, <laughs> as someone who does consume true crime um, and has, who like can kind of get snotty about it. Cause I was like a true crime teen and I like was, you know, like obviously we're in a true crime boom now, but like when I was younger, I would watch like YouTube videos about like, like 15 part YouTube videos that were like clearly made by an insane person in their <laughs> attic. Like, I solved this case. And then like now true crime is very accessible. And like, <laughs> I'm like, wow, you have quality content to consume. But true crime like obsesses over, especially when people disappear mysteriously, like my favorite true crime show disappeared, Discovery ID, it's on demand too. Um, <laughs> they obsess over like the last things that people do in their yeah. day and as if they have like enormous significance. And I think the lives of the Gilmore girls would be so difficult to analyze <laughs> from that because <laughs> they do so many crazy things that are yeah. totally inexplicable. Like a typical disappeared episode is like, why would she have taken the elevator when she usually took the stairs? <laughs> why does Lorelai do anything? Like, you know, like, like they would have so much stuff to talk about with Lorelai where they wouldn't even know where to start. Maybe the way we can do the segment is just like, either what would be the, what would be the, the thing that would be analyzed? Like what was the last thing? Or like, what is the mystery? And I think clearly the mystery is, is this, an alternate universe Kirk, or is this Kirk's evil twin? Ooh. Or his doppelganger? Ooh. Okay, well, I, I've never thought about this before, but Kirk is established to have, I believe, 11 brothers and sisters in one yeah. of them. Maybe this is one of Kirk's brothers. I don't know if we're, we're supposed to think that this guy we see is like the Kirk we come to know and love. Yeah. Gilmore Girls never has an answer for that. No. Um, then I think later also there's some confusion, like Miss Patty acts like she's never met Kirk before right. when he's working at the country. And then of course, and he's never met her. And then we find out that she's been choreographing his dance routines from when he was a young child. I love Kirk. I know, me too. Oh, um, 
so yeah so that's my mystery that and you know what is Chilton hiding why what why is there no snitching why is there no snitching policy why does Chilton have like the Cosa Nostra code <laughs> um like seriously yeah. what is going on with this also what happens to the the lit teacher who is pre-Max Medina in this episode um see ya I, I'm I have no answers um, and we will never know we will never of the no snitching policy. Can't talk about it. You just have to accept whatever Chilton throws at you without asking questions. Or something bad's gonna happen to you. That secretary of <laughs> Master Charleston's is gonna like lock you in the office. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for our last segment, what was the? Did we have a funniest line from this? I don't think we had. I had one line that I thought was funny, but oh, I did. Uh, Lorelai Gilmore, nice stripper name. I yeah, like that's that. what I was gonna say. <laughs> I think that's. Yeah. Might be what we have to call the episode. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's it. I think that's I don't to say. So, thank you for listening again. Um, please follow us on our social media, which I will put up in <laughs> soon, and I will put in the um, informational little section of our podcast. Um, thank you so much for tuning in with us. We will have episode three next week, where we will talk about one of my favorite eps. Uh, where they go golfing together. Yes. 